Amen. All right. Today's scripture will be out of Esther, chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. My wife will be reading that. Then Esther instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Thank you, Becca. This is the word of God. This last Friday was a very special day. As Rocky reminded me, it was my wife's birthday. Now, I, I am so blessed um, to have such a wonderful wife as Becca. Um, there's kind of a reason why we went to Hawaii. We don't just normally go to Hawaii on vacation, so stop putting that on. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, we've, we've been there before. Becca's uh, sister and brother-in-law lived there. And when we had gone before, we actually got t- tickets gifted to us. Unfortunately, Becca had just had surgery. Now, while she loved being with her uh, sister and brother-in-law, it was not an enjoyable trip for her. So this last year, I wanted to do something special for Becca. Uh, those of you who are married, I hope you know this, that both of you have dreams and visions for your future. No matter how perfectly they seem to align, at some point, somebody's going to have to chase their dreams, and another person's going to have to put their dreams on the back burner. And my wife has been so amazing, because she's done that for me so many times. And having had done that for her, I know what that's like. And so I really want to do something special for her this year. And around October, I was thinking, everyone's really getting really worried about the whole COVID thing. And I was like, I bet you tickets are really cheap, because when people are worried, they don't go, they don't go flying. So tickets were really cheap as well. They probably still are, husbands, if you're interested in that. <laughs> it was also another special day. It's actually Thursday evening to Friday evening was a holiday in the Jewish calendar called Purim. Purim is a unique Jewish holiday celebrating what we have, what Becca just read about today, the events of the book of Esther. Purim is one of the two Jewish holidays in the Jewish calendar that does not have specific instructions on how to celebrate or to observe it that can be found in the scriptures. The other one is Hanukkah. Purim, the name Purim literally means lots, as in the kind of lots you throw to decide on something. It is in reference to Haman, Uh, The enemy of the Jews, the one who wanted to wipe them out, he cast lots to decide on the day in which day they would wipe out the Jews. It also symbolizes the sovereignty of God that is throughout this book. 
during, during Purim, Jew, observing Jews in their synagogues and temples, will read the entire Megillah, which is the name for the scroll of Esther. Every Purim, the scroll is read out loud in the Jewish temples, word for word. This is one of the practices that only seems universal across communities. There are different traditions certain communities have. One of those traditions is to put on a play. And this is very much like when we do Christmas plays here in our church. You know, you have the kids act it out. And the audience is encouraged to interact with this play as they're, in, they're encouraged to interact even with the reading of it. To have certain things that they'll say. You know, they'll cheer um, people like Mordecai and Esther. They will sometimes jeer Vashti, the former queen of Persia. And when Haman is, whenever Haman is mentioned, whether in the reading or in the play, they shout, boo! And they have these little noisemakers. Their intention is so nobody can hear Haman's name being mentioned at all. And there's a reason for this. It wasn't just because he's the bad guy in the story. The reason is simple. God promised that he would blot out the Amalekites and Haman is the last Amalekite to be mentioned in Scripture. In a previous sermon, I mentioned how God had instructed the Israelites that he would blot out the Amalekites for the way they treated the Israelites, basically kicking them while they're down. He even gives instructions to King Saul to wipe them out, which you know Saul doesn't do. That's why he loses the kingdom. I mentioned that you know it's very much like sin. God tells us to kill it, not wink at it, not to mess around with it, because one day it will kill us. Haman is the last Amalekite mentioned, and he is the most deadly of all. If he had had his way, he would have wiped out all of the Jewish people. Haman, when, when, is, when he's even mentioned, he is hissed, he is, blue, he is booed in order to blot him out. Interesting enough, though, after saying that, there's a special pastry that is eaten at this time. Um, it, looks like a, uh, it looks like a triangle. It's called a... I was going to say the names of these things. Some of these are a little too hard. But the translation is Haman's Pocket. Um, so they're trying to blot out his name, but they have a pastry that reminds them of him. This has been compared to a Jewish Halloween because cute, many communities, they will dress up during Purim um, just like in Halloween. They'll go door to door and they will, there's a, there is certain observ- observations that certain people do with giving gifts of food that have a special name for them. And there is also a necessity to give to charity during this time as well. One last custom of Purim um, I'm going to talk about, and then I'll move on. Uh, there is a phrase in Yiddish that, said, that means Haman is cursed, and there is a phrase that means Mordecai is blessed. This custom says that you are to drink until you cannot tell the difference between the two, which is weird. I wonder if synagogues, like in Iowa, if they drink, like, burning bush light or something. (laughs) I'm an Iowa joke. (laughs) This book is is a record of events. It's not really telling us so much theology. It's telling us what happened. And most of the time when it comes to books like this, we call them historical books or narrative books, I kind of stress that there's really not, there's really not really so much saying good guys, bad guys, really saying this is what happened. And then you infer from God's law who acted justly and who didn't. This is a bit different because there is obvious good guys, obvious bad guys. Um, in the past, when I've been talking about the book of Esther, I have said that um, uh, in the past I have said that this is a book that was almost not included in the in the Bible, was not included in the scriptures. 
when I preach on this, that's what I normally say. I'll never say that again because this is a low view of the scriptures. That is the idea that the church decides what, what is in the Bible. Not the Bible deciding what's in the church. Amen. If you remember when I did my study on how to read the Bible, I talked about the canon of scripture. I mean, the list of books that we have in the scripture. Why we have these. We don't decide on them, we discover them. We discover what the early believers already knew. They knew in their hearts what the Word of God was. That is why it's our authority. We are not the authority over the Scripture. We don't get to randomly decide this is in there, this is not. It doesn't matter if you like Esther or not. It's the Word of God. Amen. It doesn't matter if there was influential people who campaigned against it. It doesn't matter. It is the Word of God. It's the Word of God whether you like it or not. Some people don't like the book of John. Well, too bad. It's the Word of God. And at the end of all things, God will judge you by his word. And you don't get to be like, well, I, I don't accept John into the canon. I don't accept James into the canon of scripture. It doesn't matter. You are to discover it, not decide on it. Amen. So, kind of fun to start out the sermon saying, hey, I was wrong in the past. Let me write it. <laughs> you know, um, Esther, it's been, viewed, it's been viewed that way because there is no mention of God, of Yahweh, or any of his names in the entire book. There's very little teaching. However, it is a great example, a God-breathed example of how God works in and through our lives. And a lot of times, without us even knowing it. Amen. He has guided your steps and placed you into position for steps of righteousness, for the steps of the righteous person are ordered by God. Have you ever questioned, why am I here? Like, for heaven's sake, why am I, what on earth am I here for? Why does your life continue to go on? Why doesn't God just call you up to heaven this very moment? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. You are here at Faith Church for such a time as this. You are at your job, school, town, street, for a purpose that God has ordained since the beginning of creation. And whether you walk in it or not, that is up to you. Because you will not frustrate God's plans there as none you can. But you have an opportunity now to gain treasure in heaven. Do you know what your purpose is? Do you? That's a big question. Philosophers have been debating since maybe forever. Why am I here? What is my purpose in this life? I know with certainty what your purpose is. In fact, this was, this was decided a long time ago. You can read through the scriptures, but I really find the Westminster Confession consolidating into one phrase that I find incredibly helpful. The chief end of man, mankind, is to love God and enjoy Him forever. That is your purpose. I don't care if you are if you are the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, the President of the United States, King of the world. If you do not love God and enjoy Him, you don't have it. You live an empty half-life and should be pitied above all people. That's right. Your purpose is this. You also have secondary purposes that God has prepared before the foundation of the world. This is found in Ephesians 2.10. That we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared before the foundation of the world for us to walk in. Amen. These things do not change God's plans, but they are your opportunities to gain treasure in heaven, to live the adventure life that God has before you. We do them not, be, not to gain the love of God, but because he loves us. And the distinction is powerful. It's on purpose. We love because he first loved us. Amen. Going back to the book of Esther. Esther's life does not start off well. Her mother and father die. 
Being an orphan is hard in any age. In a time where your people are not even a people, they are under the subjugation of a foreign power, it's a difficult time, but her cousin named Mordecai, he adopts her. Her name isn't actually Esther. Her birth name is Hadassah, which means myrtle tree. The myrtle is a, has a pleasing fragrance. Rabbi Shemuel um, Eliezer, eldest, says, Man is like a tree of the field. Therefore, righteous are called, the righteous are called myrtles, like it to a good tree with a pleasing smell. The Talmud says this about Hadassah. Why was she called Hadassah? Because the righteous are like myrtles. As it states in Zechariah 1.8, And was standing among the myrtles, the right, speaking of the righteous prophets. From this point on, she probably would have lived a very normal life. Her adopted father, who was her cousin, was an official in the new government, and she would have lived a very comfortable life. But that is not where her story ends. Just when it seems like things are looking up, tragedy strikes, and it's not even of her making. Xerxes and Vashti, this is part of their story, the king and queen of Persia. Persia is the greatest kingdom in, of this time. After them would be the Greeks, but the Greeks are still these separate city-states. Really, the Persians unite the Greeks against them, really causing their own downfall. But they are the most powerful nation at this time. They conquered Babylon, who conquered Israel and Judah. The king of Persia has a falling out with his former queen, and he deposes her. That's a bit of an understatement. Xerxes, the king, at the time, is getting ready to go to war. You actually know, you actually know about the war he's about to have. It is with the Greeks. If you know about the 300, if you know about the battles of Thermopylae and Marathon, this is about what he's about to get into. He has a month-long strategy session with all of his generals deciding how they're going to conquer the Greeks, and they decide overwhelming force. Greek historian, the Greek historian, um, estimates their number around a million. Now, a lot of people have a bit of skepticism around there, but it was overwhelming force is what they decided. And they were convinced of their victory because we read in Esther, he holds a party of parties. You've never been to a party like this. Opulence, extravagance. It was basically a week-long drunken orgy, and when he's at the height of his intoxication, he wants his new wife, Vashti, to come and to present herself before his general and before the people. There's this movie called One Night with the King. I actually like this movie, but it gets something very wrong. Xerxes is not a sympathetic person. He is a tyrant. He is a pig. There, are certain, there was one commentator I read, and they believed that the implication was for her to come and dance naked before him and his generals. Vashti shows the first sign of courage that we read in the book because she refuses the king, and he deposes her. Despite... Uh, once again, despite what that movie would say, Xerxes is not a sympathetic person. Queen Vashti refuses, and, and here we have our first great show of bravery. We do not really know anything about Vashti. She is lost to history. Was she of noble blood? Was she put to death? Was she just demoted to the harem? We don't know anything about her because Xerxes is very thorough in blotting her out of existence. That is the setting we are about to have when it comes to Esther. What he then does next has been, has been described by others as kind of a um, The Bachelor Persia. And I don't know if you know about the show Bachelor. 
I'm not a fan. You'll probably notice in my description of it. But you have all these gals, and they're all trying to win the bachelor's heart. And it's, it's very weird to me. So people say, oh, this is like the Bachelor, but Persia edition. I'm like, well, I guess, and unless, I mean, like, I guess if, uh, if you didn't get a rose, you then became uh, a forced prostitute. I guess it would be something like that. It's nothing like that. It is brutal. It is terrible. You are taken from your family, from the light that you would once know. Esther is one of these. There's nothing glamorous about this. This, this should make your heart beat fast. Because what should happen to poor Esther, Hadassah, who changes her name to Esther so she might fit in, so nobody knows that she is a Jew. She is then she is then inducted into the king's harem, and she has her one night with the king. She listens to the chief eunuch, and she wins the king's heart. And now it seems like she's on easy street. She has now gone from orphan Jewish girl to queen of the largest nation on the world, the most powerful nation. There's a snake named Haman. Haman cares about recognition above all other things. And a lower peer of his, Mordecai, Esther's father, um, adopted father, doesn't bow to him. Haman is obsessed, though, with recognition. He has gallows built for Mordecai, and he is enraged. He wants him dead. And Queen Esther speaks to the king and says, Hey, you know Mordecai? Mordecai, before this, had heard about a plot to assassinate the king, exposed it, and the king didn't do anything. And she's like, how, could, how, how as a just king, can you let this recognition go away? So the king is thinking about Xerxes. His chief advisor is Haman. Haman wants Mordecai dead, has gallows built for him, you know, places to hang him on. And uh, he has Haman come in, he says, what should the king do for the man he delights? And Haman's thinking, it's me. Of course it's me. He doesn't even consider there should be anybody else who gets recognition. Oh, it must be me. So he's like, okay, make a big show of it. Make a huge parade him throughout. Have your highest officials proclaim, this is the man whom the king delights in. And Xerxes like, that's a great idea. Now everything you just said, do for my servant Mordecai. What was murderous annoyance has now become genocidal mania. And through cast of lots, he decides on a certain day, convinces the king by bribing him that on this day, all the enemies of the Jews, they get to attack the Jews, and the Jews can't fight back. It would be an utter slaughter. It would make the Holocaust not, not seem all that great because the whole race would be completely gone, not just six million. This is the setting that we have before we even get to the part that Becca read today. Esther is a Jew, but nobody knows she's a Jew. Mordecai is sitting in sackcloth and ashes at the king's gate, and he sends his message to Esther. This book is a book of courage. And as the theologian Bruce Lee said, courage is not the absence of fear, it is the ability to act in the presence of fear. I was a joke because I'm talking about the actor. <laughs> Vashti, Mordecai, and Esther have a courage, lived. They live a life of courage, a life, despite the consequences, they will do what they know in their heart is right. How, 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 has, how has God put us in his story of courage? You live this life. Will you live it? Will you choose to live a life of courage? In, in, my, in my body, in my sermon today, I'm going to be going verse by verse. You're going to want your Bibles out here. 
Verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in the king, uh, come into the king these thirty days. So Mordecai sends his messenger to plead with Esther to say something because the intention of Haman is to slaughter her people and she is queen. What does Esther give in response? She gives an excuse. My first point today is excuses are like armpits. Everyone has two. (laughs) She sends back an excuse and it's a pretty good one, right? I kind of doubt you've ever had an excuse like this. Like somebody's like, okay, can you go to the box and tell them like we need more toilet paper in the men's room? You're like... If I go into my boss's presence, and if he does not point at me with his letter opener, I will be murdered. <laughs> she has a pretty good excuse. If she goes into the king's presence and she's not invited, she's as good as dead. We can all remember what happened to the queen before her. He does not mess around. And that queen was of noble blood, perhaps. Esther certainly is not. She's a commoner and worse. If anyone finds out she's a Jew, she's in an lower place. Haman, the chief official, wants her dead. The stakes in this are life and death. The life and death of herself and of her people. She can say something, and if the king isn't pleased with her, he can just let her die, and so will her people. Or she can say nothing and watch her people get slaughtered. Or she can trust God, and she will be spared, and so will her people. Those are her choices. Every one of us has something our Father has asked us to do. One of those things is to, is to tell others about Jesus Christ, the Great Commission, to go out in all the world and preach to them the gospel. God has a plan for each and every one of us that is, expe- that is specifically tailored to the things that he has gifted us. Those passions you have inside of you, those are given to you by God. If they're in alignment with his word, that is. You don't get to say, this is my dream, and it goes against God's word and say that that's given to you by God. It's not. But you have other passions in you that maybe you've let die because maybe the consequences you're worried about and you give your excuses. You know, this is good news. It works it worked that, that beforehand, before the foundation of the world, God had, made, had, had brought together good works for us to walk in. He has not made us for mediocrity. He has made us for greatness. And we, and we can always have an excuse not to do what is easy, not to do what is right, instead to do what is easy. There's always an excuse to be average or below average instead of accepting greatness. I think we fear achievement more than we fear failure. So we make our excuses to cop out of whatever we are called to. Sometimes they seem like they're good. Sometimes they seem like they're pitiful. But an excuse is just an excuse to do what our Father has asked of us. Maybe you maybe remember Dion Primetime Sanders. He was an outfielder for the Atlanta Braves, and he was a quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons. And he is the only athlete to have hit a major league home run and scored an NFL touchdown in the same week. Sanders grew up on the main streets of Fort Myers, Florida, where exposure to some would-be athletes spurred him to make success for himself. He explains, I call them the idols. If I'd done this, if I'd be, I'd be making three million a day, if I'd practice a little harder, I'd be a superstar. 
They were as fast as me when we were kids, but instead of working for their dream, they chose drugs and a life of street corners. When I was young, I had practiced my family who didn't, who didn't, um, my friends who didn't went straight to the streets and never left. That moment after school is the moment we need to grab. We didn't, we don't need any more items from Esquire magazine. We all have these excuses not to be who God has called us to be. I know I do. I think our chief excuse is to be comfortable. It's much more comfortable to do nothing than to do something. <clears throat> right after college, I didn't go straight into the ministry. I worked at this inpatient treatment um, center for a couple of years. And at first it didn't go very well, but then it went very well. I started advancing much faster than I had ever anticipated. And, and I wanted to have this excuse. In fact, I almost didn't propose to my wife because I wanted to see how far I could go in this company. And I was willing to give up. I was willing to give up the call of God in my life. It's not like a conscious decision. It was just comfortable. I made my rut. And I was comfortable where I was at. And to get out of the rut, to get out of where I was comfortable, was terrifying. I knew when I got married to Becca, we would move over to Wheaton, Illinois. And that, that job, what I was planning there, I wouldn't be able to do it. I'd have to actually live what God had called me to live. Comfort is the enemy of success. It is the enemy of greatness. Ironically, it's the enemy of happiness. It is the enemy of joy. It is the enemy of fulfillment. It is often confused with contentment. A person may feel like they're content sitting on their couch all day, getting high, overeating, smoking, and drinking, and just in the rut that they're in, they may even think that this, this is happy as opposed to actually getting up and doing something to live the life that I'm called to live, but they do not know happiness. It's bondage that they think is freedom. That is not the life God has called you to. Prizing comfort to make that the center of our life, to make that a God, will be a worse taskmaster than we could ever imagine. Esther has an excuse that she is willing to just see what is going to happen here, as opposed to step out to know what she's doing is right, know what she should do is right. Is there something God wants you to do? Is there a passion in your life that you are giving up on already because you're because it's going to be hard because there is risk involved? You're like Esther, and you're, if you're like Esther, maybe you're terrified by the implications. You know what's interesting about Esther, about Mordecai, when he tells her? He does not tell her, I got a word from the Lord. He has what we have. He has God's word. He knows what's right, and he knows God's promise. He knows that God will deliver his people. They will not perish from the face of the earth, no matter what. You know, probably one of the most convincing arguments for God is the existence of the Jewish people. Because tell me, where are the Philistines today? Where's the Malachites? Where are the Hittites? Where are all these people we read about in history once they get conquered by Persia, Babylon, Assyria? Nowhere. They have disappeared completely. We kind of give lip service to the Persians, which is modern-day Iran. God has preserved his people. Mordecai knows this. He's heard the promises of God. He knows that God will fulfill his promise, but perhaps maybe him and his adopted daughter have a plan in this. My second point is about destiny. This is verses 12 through 14. And they, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. 
Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. But if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. When Esther gives, when God gives his promise, he keeps it. Nothing and no one can, can upset his plan. This is something somebody found out the very hard way, a predecessor of Xerxes from a different kingdom, a man named Nebuchadnezzar. When he grew old, he became proud. He looked at his, all of his kingdom. Who is like this? And God strikes him down. He then goes into the field and eats the, eats the grass like a cow. He comes to his senses and he says, he makes this incredible proclamation that God is God, is God and he does whatever he wants. That's the sovereignty of God. Mordecai knows that relief and deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. If Esther stays silent, God will rescue his people. He had done it before Esther, and he will do it so many times after, because a thousand and some years later, in a, in a <coughs> European country, a madman comes to power. And, and that year, he, outlaw, he, he outlaws Purim. This happened after a night of shattered glass in which the Jews in his nation were unjustly persecuted, targeted, lynched, and murdered. His advisors told him he should outlaw Purim because if the Jews are allowed to just if the, if the Jews are allowed to celebrate it, they may enact a new Purim on the German people. This man, his name was Adolf Hitler, and he conducted his own persecution like a modern-day Haman. But God still brought the relief and deliverance for his people. So take a breath, people. It does not all depend on you. God has a place for you in his plan. But make one mistake, his plan will be accomplished. Amen. According to her father, Esther was where she was at, perhaps. Esther was at where was, let me rephrase that. According to her father, Esther was where she was at because God had placed her there. She was queen by God's hand. And maybe the reason for that placement was to be an agent that God would use to bring forth the salvation for his people. She didn't know it, but she was being guided by the hand of God. All her life had been was, was leading to this very moment. You did not happen to come here today. You are not watching online by circumstance somebody sent you a link. But you are here today because our great God has a plan for you, dear Christian, dear even unbeliever. He wants you in his family. In fact, you have multiple purposes. And you, and you are where you are at for such a time as this. The town you live in, the family you are part of, are not by accident. God has a purpose for you in your family. And in, this, and in your town and in your school. We know, that you have, we know that you have come to a position for such a time as this. We need to live like we have purpose. This was something I think was hard for me when I, lived in, when I was in high school, to know that I had a purpose, that I was living for a purpose. All the high school movies you've ever seen are, are so ridiculous. The reason why they're ridiculous, they act like high school is like one event to another. It's always something exciting and fun. And all the high schoolers, you know what I'm talking about, because most of the time in high school, you're just trying to stay awake during class. 
one day blends into another. I mean, especially this last year, right? Who would, I, I mean, I would love to see a, a teenager movie about, like, COVID, because if they were to be honest, it would just be a couple of kids sitting at their house playing, like, video games and chatting online, doing TikTok videos in their bathroom. Um, that's real life, right? And to, 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 to understand, even in those times, even in the mundane purpose of this world, that I have a purpose that I should be living toward, that I should be living in, that God has called me to, to this place for such a time as this, because I remembered in high school when I came to that point that every day I was going into battle, every day I had to put on the armor, every day I had an opportunity to make a difference, every day I had an opportunity to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, to tell others of the good news of Jesus Christ. It changes the way you live. It changes the way you live. Don't let, don't let excuses stop you from becoming everything God has called you to be. Don't let the petty things keep you from the great things. You have sufferings, you have struggles, they are real, they are difficult. It may look like, it may not look like Esther's, I guarantee they don't. But they are real and they are serious. Everybody else has the same ones as well, or similar ones. One sure way to make sure that you will stay exactly where you're at always, though, is to blame others and give up. That's what excuses are, just making ourselves feel better for giving up. To blame others for why we are not everything that God has called us to be. And heartbreakingly, you see this all the time. The person, nothing ever happened. They ne they've never done anything in their life. Everything happens to them. They never happen to anybody else. They are the eternal victim. It is always something else that is happening to me. I remember in college, um, I had broken my hand my senior year, which makes it hard to write papers. So I had these two fingers that were, you know, um, cast up. And um, so I was in this class, and um, I was about to tell my teacher about how, like, he's going to have to, like, wait on my paper. And then I, I realized I had, a, I had a, a fellow student. His name was Tom. Tom had quadriplegia which means he didn't have full function of all of his arms and legs. In fact, no function in his legs, little function in his hands. In fact, his hands were bent into basically kind of like a claw, no dexterity at all. Tom typed his own papers. Tom was an author, by the way. He typed his own book, and he never turned anything in late. So I, I decided better not to tell my professor that, oh, poor, oh, woe is me, I don't have use of these two fingers. You want to stay where you're at? Make excuses. Amen. You want to let life pass you by, not to live the life that God has called you to? Make excuses. Blame everybody. Blame all. Blame America. Blame God. Blame your parents. Blame everybody. You'll stay exactly where you're at. Or you can decide, I am here for such a time as this. For this reason I was born. And I have an opportunity to gain treasure in heaven. Moths and thieves destroy the treasure on earth, but the treasure in heaven cannot be taken away. His excuses don't matter. While our excuses may seem really good and reasonable, ultimately they don't matter. If Esther's excuses, though real and serious, if they didn't matter, what Mordecai says, if she stays silent at this time, relief and, the, and deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place, but her and her father's house will be destroyed. You can make excuses, or you can strap on the armor and get to work. And that's my third point, preparation. 
verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susan. Hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three three days and three nights. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, and though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She does not say right away, Yep, sure, I'll do that. Go in right now. There's something to say about wisdom, right? Not to just throw away your life or to be or to be foolish, but to have some wisdom to know that maybe you're not where you should be spiritually and you have to prepare for that to do God's work. Amen. Esther doesn't just say, sure, I'll go right there and now and take care of it. But she has people pray and fast for her. She prepares herself spiritually. This is something we should be doing every day because every day we have opportunities. Prepare yourself for war because we are in one. We've been doing this sermon series, and I took a break this week because it is pure, and um, on the armor of God. Every day to understand that we are in a battle and we need to armor up. Are you discouraged? Put on the armor. Are you afraid? Put on the armor. Are you angry? Put on the armor. Esther, in this verse, she's talking about putting on the armor, even though she's not saying it in that way. And one little Jewish orphan will be mightier than the king when all is said and done. That's powerful. What can God do through you? You cannot possibly imagine. When you become spiritually prepared, God gives you insight, as he gave Esther insight. Maybe the thought of doing something for God has paralyzed you because you are not spiritually prepared. So how do you become prepared? Well, I'm glad you asked. I've been doing a sermon series on the armor of God. I suggest you take a look at it. You spend your days with God as the chief priority. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. You, you are like Esther, and you take a lead in prayer and devotion. Paul tells Timothy to not let people look down on him because he is young. I like this because we kind of see it in different ways. He doesn't tell Timothy's church, don't look down on him. He tells Timothy, don't let them look down on him. There's a big difference. We want to whine all the time about people not respecting us, about things. Don't let people not respect you. There, there's something we miss in our culture that's become more and more just kind of, I'll say kind of limp-wristed. We think something, we keep it to ourselves, and we blast them online, right? We're a big person online. How about instead, when somebody says something, they're out of line, you, go, you talk to them, you are out of line, and you handle it in a mature way. Paul tells Timothy, don't let them look down on you. Set the example. It is not on them to not look down on him. It's on him to not let them look down on him. Become spiritually prepared. Know Christ in such a powerful way that people see it in you. One thing when I was in high school that I would do every year, start of the year, I would pray and I'd say, God, what do you want to do with me this year? One year it was, God wanted me to learn how to be a a good friend. So I'd say, God, work in me in such a way that somebody will tell me that I'm a good friend without me having to prod it, without me having to do like the kind of thing where you fish for compliments. You know what I mean? I'm such a bad friend. That's a good way for somebody to say, oh, you're a good friend. Or if you're like, oh, I'm so ugly, for somebody to say, no, you're beautiful. It's fishing for compliments. So my God, I'm not going to fish for compliments. I want you to do such a work in me that those around me know that they can count on me that you've done such a work in me that I've become a good friend this year? Become spiritually prepared. Pray and fast. 
How did Esther prepare? Let's look at how, how Esther um, was prepared spiritually to do what God had called her to do. She prays and fasts. She has other people pray and fast. She doesn't just barge right in. She has a multi-tiered plan. You can read that in the rest of the book of Esther. In fact, she doesn't even say what her plan is right away. When the king says, up to half my kingdom, she's like, I just want to have a meal with you. And she lets Haman basically expose himself. Haman is literally hung on the gallows he made for Mordecai. She prepares she doesn't just barge in and demand her rights, but she, she uses wisdom, she prays, she fasts. We already know that the king has no problem deposing his queens. And this woman at best was a commoner, so she prepares. When we talk about prayer, we are not talking about saying a few words right before something to give you courage. We are talking about a deep place of coming in alignment with the will of God. Prayer is communication with the manufacturer. He is the one who knows the end from the beginning. He is the one who knows the plans that he has for you. And here is the, here's the really cool thing. He wants us to talk to him. He wants us to get to know him. And he wants us to be in alignment with him because he has great plans for us. The second thing she does is fasting. I, could, I should be doing a whole sermon series sometime on fasting, because fasting is not just simply going without food, even though that's the literal term for it. There's something called intermediate fasting, and the health benefits are, are debated, I know. Fasting, when they talk about fasting in the Bible, it's not just taking away food, but it's taking away something that reminds you to cry out to God, the sustainer of all things. That He is the one who, you are, who is ultimately in control Sages, wise men, theologians admire the book of Esther because though God is not mentioned, it's like he's screaming through the book. Amen. It is so tangible what God is doing in this book. Through her prayer and fasting, she comes up with, with an idea that her education, where she's at in place and time, doesn't really justify, but she comes up with this and it is perfect in its execution and the Jews end up um, the Jews end up better on the other side of it than before it happened. Worship team, you come up at this time. So today, from the book of Esther, we're encouraged to live a life of courage. To fall back on the sovereignty of God, to know that He has us. To know that we have been placed where we're at for such a time as this. It is a book about courage. Vashti, Mordecai, and yes, Esther, who goes into the king's presence yet another time later in the book, once again knowing that her life could be forfeit. And I love her response, if I perish, I perish. We need, we need believers who have that attitude, if I perish, I perish. Instead of saying, oh man, if I, if I open up my church too early, then, there, then I'm going to be thrown in jail. If I perish, I perish. Yeah. If I say something, if I say something about God's law, Oh, then I'm going to be canceled. Well, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to pray I'm going to be wise. I don't need to take risks for my own vanity. But if I perish, I perish. I will do what God has said. I will not bow before men because I stand before my God. Amen. God has called you to a life of courage. You are not called to a life of mediocrity. If you were asked at the beginning of this sermon, who would win? Little orphan Jewish girl? A king of the known world. 
You might have said, well, king of the known world, right? Esther dictates what happens in the kingdom. She's positionally greater than the king. And he doesn't even know it, right? He doesn't have any clue. And then, he got, and then in his own arrogance, he's about to start a war he can't even win. Faith makes a little orphan Jewish girl greater than a mighty king. So don't miss out. You were made and you were saved. You're predestined for good works that are beyond drama, that are beyond all the concerns and activities of this life. You are destined, you have a destiny. Reach out and grab it. You do that by being obedient because you might just be here for such a time as this. We're going to be ending our service with another song of worship. I love that we end our service this way. To give God what he is due, his glory, his praise. By nature, we are glory stealers. One of the reasons worship is so important is to keep us grounded. To realize you are king and not me. To keep us grounded, to know that he is sovereign over all. To know that we, the things in our life are not just for our enjoyment. Yes, that's part of it. But they are also to bless others. Amen. We are in our position, perhaps for such a time as this. Will you please stand with us? Please sing our praise to God.